This is my mom. She's a really good doctor. Hi, I'm Dr. Lex, but I'm also mom to Isabella, Lance, and Lucia. Our mom takes care of our family, our friends, and her patients. On this podcast, our mom is going to be talking to her doctor friends and teaching you how to keep your family safe and healthy. Okay, mom. Ready for the show? Let's do it. Welcome to Family Health with Dr. Lex. You know I love advocating for accessibility and equity in mental health care. So I was especially excited to speak with Dr. Allison Baum. She is a family physician trained in the U.S., currently living in the U.K. and living with bipolar disorder. Dr. Baum has been brave enough to share her story for the first time here on this podcast. She is living proof that you can live a healthy, fulfilling life while managing mental illness. I am honored to share her story and amplify her voice. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my friend, Dr. Allison Baum to the show. There we go. All right. So my second guest of the day who is joining me from across the pond, Dr. Allison Baum is coming to us from the UK and she is a board certified family physician who is going to talk to us about a really interesting topic. And I'm excited to learn about, um, she's going to tell us about navigating life with bipolar disorder. Dr. Baum, thanks for being here. I'm so excited to have this conversation and uh, I know that you have so much to share. Yes. Well, thank you for having me. This is going to be my first time talking about it. I guess, in public on podcast. So I'm really excited to share my story. Thank you for having me. I'm really, I'm really interested in particular that you want to share this story because there's a lot of stigma associated with mental health, especially with mental health in professional uh, women. Um, we, we tend not to ask for help in general with anything, with bringing in multiple bags of groceries from the car. We think we can do it all in <laughs> one load, you know, and those are those are simple mundane things when it comes to something as heavy and as difficult and, and, and as, um, with as much stigma attached to it, I can imagine that having gone through this was particularly challenging. And I just first want to commend you for even being able to recognize, uh, and, 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 uh, ask for help, get the help that you needed, and now go and teach and help people and share your story. So I just really, really want to commend you first and foremost for breaking that stigma, for being here and for sharing a very sensitive uh, and difficult um, su- subject matter. Well, thanks, Dr. Lex. Yeah, it's actually been in little baby steps that I've been able to do this. At first, just telling my coworkers was difficult, and then I could tell my friends, and then I guess now here I am on a podcast. So, uh, but it is very important for me to tell other professional women. And also, I hope other physicians can hear my story because I think it can be very helpful. Um, and how this all came about was I was in my mid 30s when I was, I say I was finally diagnosed, but I actually kind of came to a psychiatrist and said, Hey, I think I have bipolar. <laughs> I'd been struggling with depression all throughout my adult life. And most people actually with bipolar are diagnosed after about a decade of dealing with depression, just because the depression is what bums you out the most. But then when you're manic, you kind of don't even notice it's not a bummer, but actually that can be just as destructive, not more. Um, But yeah, I, I came to the psychiatrist and said, Hey, I think this is going on. (laughs) Um, But I was actually, I had the same job as you at the time. I was faculty at a family medicine residency and that's the problem. That was the problem. I was taking night call 
And I had this stretch at night call that was causing problems uh, for me. And it caused me to step back and take a break from my job. Um, before we got kind of go into, you know, how it came about and how you dealt with it, can you define bipolar disorder for, for us and maybe describe some of the symptoms? Because I think that a lot of people confuse bipolar disorder with, you know, maybe multiple personality disorder. Maybe some people think bipolar means schizophrenia. A lot of people miss mm -hmm. the term bipolar disorder. So how is it defined clinically? And then also what are some of the symptoms that, um, that, that, or a spectrum of symptoms that can exist for patients who are living with bipolar disorder? Definitely. Yeah. Thanks. Um, it's hard because a lot of people, you know, they'll say, oh, such and such is bipolar. And I think what they oftentimes mean is something that can flip very quickly mm -hmm. um, or a situation that can be one way and then the other. Mm -hmm. But bipolar disorder is actually something that evolves very slowly over the course of months. So you can have depression, which is obviously something that, you know, you're sad for very many months and you feel terrible. Um, so there is that. And then there's this other side that people who are just depressed don't get, and that's manic. So for several months, I feel good isn't the right term. Um, cause it's not good, but like if people feel like they can do things, uh, like they have energy to do things. They feel, um, uh, <laughs> it's hard to put into words. Um, they're moving a little bit faster. Their brain is moving a little bit faster. They take risks that they wouldn't normally take like gambling or spending money. Um, for me, it was starting businesses. I would start all these businesses. Um, the one that got me to be diagnosed is within a three month period, I started three different businesses and, I got um, international business contacts. I got three different trademarks. And uh, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, one day I realized, yeah, that's not normal for a doctor to start a hair extension business. So I, I went and I saw a psychiatrist and I said, yeah, this actually reminds me of some other things I've done. So it's an interesting, interesting um, kind of way that it presented for you, because in textbooks, and when we learn about bipolar disorder, we, we mentioned the things that you mentioned, the mania being elevated energy. We talk about overspending, taking risks, doing things and behaving in a way that's not in uh, not consistent with your typical character. But the big thing that you described that I just want to highlight the difference between someone who has bipolar disorder versus um, someone who has strictly depressed is that that mania cycles with depression. Um, so you have these periods of very high energy, high moving, fast moving, feeling limitless, like you can do anything. And then periods of feeling the opposite. Is that, is that right? And right. it cycles, how, how often does it typically cycle? So it, it depends on the person. Um, and again, I, my experience is my experience and I don't want to extrapolate that to anyone else. But for me, I noticed a big seasonality with it and I wouldn't cycle every year, but during the winter, I do tend to feel a little bit more down and then it doesn't take much sleep deprivation for me to get kind of unbalanced. So there was a period of time prior to this 
manic episode that I described where I started all the weird businesses, uh, where I had been on call for a long stretch. So it, I don't know. For me, I can look back and see that there were at least five manic periods during my 20s and 30s. Okay. So what is that? I don't know. Like every few years. And there was a, there are usually triggers associated with it, whether it's sleep deprivation or stress or season, maybe change of circumstances. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. And I can link at least one or two to, um, antidepressants that I'd been prescribed in completely well-intentioned. So that's another thing that I would want the listeners to understand is for 99% of the people with depression, antidepressants are absolutely a good thing to try, but for someone with bipolar disorder, when they're prescribed an antidepressant, it can quote unquote, switch you over into mania. So someone who starts feeling kind of off kilter, I guess, after being prescribed an antidepressant, um, and if they start having racing thoughts or start sleeping less, um, might be a good reason to go back to the doctor and not just go off the antidepressant, but actually tell them, I think there might be something else going on here. Don't just stop taking it. You know, it, it's, um, well, you, you, I'm glad you brought up the medications because there are a lot of people on medications. There are a lot of ma- people who present usually to their primary care doctor with a complaint and that complaint may be low energy. It may be, I don't enjoy the things that I used to enjoy. I'm not sleeping as much, you know, my relationships are suffering and, um, they'll be prescribed an antidepressant to treat depression. But I think it's really important to, uh, to, to, to really know that there are other, that those symptoms can mean other things like bipolar disorder and that the treatment is different. The treatment of depression is very different than the treatment for bipolar is very different than the treatment for multiple personality disorder and schizophrenia. And so, uh, mental health, being able to talk about it freely, you know, being honest with your symptoms is really going to be able to help our physician colleagues determine what is this and what is the best way to treat it. Um, and again, just when it comes to medication, I always say this, but especially with mental health medications, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a long period of trial and error and trying to figure out because the medications take so long, your body, it takes a long time for your body to adjust to medications, to really evaluate is the, are, are these medicines working? Do they need to be adjusted? Um, and so when it comes to complex, uh, complex conditions like this, it's, it's really important to have a, a trusted partner that you can communicate with, that you can be honest with, and who really knows their stuff when it comes to the differences between the diagnoses. Absolutely. Yeah. That's one thing that I knew for sure going into this is that I'm going to be on medication for the rest of my life, but I was committed to finding some medications that worked for me. And it took me a couple of years before I found the current set that I'm on, but they've been working for several years now and I'm very happy and I understand they might get switched up at some point, but I'm, I'm ready for that. That's fine. You were a med student and you studied all this stuff. And um, <laughs> when there's a, there's something for those who are listening called med student syndrome, which is when we go through medical school 
every diagnosis that comes up, we're like, oh yeah, I have that. You know, we all are afflicted with every condition, especially when it comes to like the mental health stuff. We're like, oh yeah, I felt that, or I felt this. And we kind of take on that self-assessment and like, am I narcissistic? Am I bipolar? Am I, you know, Mm -hmm. so you, you know what the criteria are. You knew what they were when you assessed yourself how how scary was it to actually recognize that you might have a diagnosable mental health condition um, knowing what those criteria were? You know, on the one hand, it was a relief because I probably should have realized back when I was a med student that this had been going on for a little while. Um, and then there were some things that I could do to start to treat myself better, such as regulating my sleep, getting a better schedule. Uh, And then there's some other things that we can talk about that I started to do to even treat myself even better. But the things that were scary that I started to learn even more were that each mood episode that I'd had that I hadn't been treating cut away at my cognitive capacity. So, you know, all those times in my twenties and thirties that I had cycled and I wasn't treating myself You know, I was chip, chip, chipping away at my (laughs) cognitive capacity. Uh, And I was already starting from a pretty good spot. I was one of those annoying people who didn't have to study much in med school. But I notice now that I have word finding problems, which is one of the reasons that I stopped seeing patients online. (laughs) I would be sitting there going, I'm going to prescribe you some, uh, um, oh yeah, doxycycline. (laughs) It was really annoying. So that was scary for me. You mentioned um, kind of, you said you use the word relief, you know, and I think that that's common in any patient who's going through symptoms and they don't know what it's called. They don't have a diagnosis for it. The kind of unknown or the kind of, you know, waiting to come up with what is a name for what I have and that period of the workup is really scary. I mean, we see it in like, cancer workup, you know, once you know what you have, or once you know what you can call it, and once you know what your treatment options are, a lot of people feel a sense of relief and also maybe a little bit more of a sense of control uh, or, you know, hope that there are options for treatment. That's got to be, you know, there's got to be something that can help me. So that period of uncertainty is a common thread for mental health and also physical conditions. Um, And then kind of once, you know, you must've felt better. Like there's something that I can do to help myself. Definitely. And I think if I had known back then how stable and good I could feel now, I I would have felt such relief because every day today I get to feel good I, I just, I can't even describe to you. It's there. I, let me tell you the things that I rely on now to feel good. There's obviously the medications um, and I'll never stop taking those. I'm not <laughs> going to do that, but I, I sleep the same amount every day and I'm really boring. I've gone on a girl's trip this year and all the girls stayed up late and they went out and I did not, I just said, Hey, I have to go to bed. And I was in bed before 11 and that was very boring and I didn't drink. So I can't drink anymore. Um, and I've noticed that because it messes with my sleep, it messes with your NREM sleep. 
So I can't do that either. But yeah, if you're, if you're listening and you could see the smile on her face, you should go and watch the YouTube video of this because, and I think we've come to kind of like, we're, you know, only a couple, a handful of minutes into the conversation. And I think I've come, we've come to the, the crux of what I, and the, and the, the, the whole, the, the moral of the story, what I wanted people to hear from this conversation is that if you are having symptoms and you know that something is wrong and you feel like there is some kind of shame or stigma or fear associated with potentially what, you know, what you could be diagnosed with, you have to, you have to understand that on the other side of that is joy, is happiness, is a functional life, is, you know, achieving your goals and your potential. And um, I think that the fear is what, and the stigma is what keeps people from getting help. And, you know, Ali, you're a, a great example of what you just said is that if you had known before what was possible, you know, maybe you wouldn't suffer, wouldn't have suffered as long as you did. And maybe people who are listening will hear what you're saying and, 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 and ask for help. Oh yeah, absolutely. I don't think, I know there's nothing worth putting off the way I feel right now. Um, and I do a different job now. I am not a physician anymore. Um, although I mean, I am, but that's not the work I'm doing right now. I'm not legally allowed to because I don't live in the United States, <laughs> but um, yeah, I am a coach now and I love it, but it doesn't matter. I could be just cooking for my kids all day and it, it wouldn't matter. I could be a dog walker and it wouldn't matter. That doesn't sound very inspiring. <laughs> I don't think. No, it absolutely. It does. I think you're wrong. I think absolutely. It does. It, what you're saying is that you're, that nothing could supersedes your potential for, um, for happiness and for a joyful, you know, existence where you feel like yourself in your own skin. And that's something that so many people are missing and are afraid to find because they're afraid of what it's called, or they're afraid that they're going to be judged, or they're afraid that, you know, someone's going to know that they need medicine, you know, especially their employer. And, you know, I, I kind of want to ask about that. You know, you came to this when you were working as a physician and, <clears throat> we work so hard to get to this point and to we spend so many years and so much money and sacrifice a lot to be able to be a physician that for many of us the concern that we could lose that if anyone knows that we're suffering with mental health substance abuse you know any of those things is a real fear and it really keeps people from asking for help in any profession, but especially in medicine, because our colleagues mm -hmm. know what to look for. Our colleagues know when we're acting out of line or when we're not behaving like ourselves, they can diagnose us. So it's really, it's a, it's a, it's a huge fear that prevents people from getting help. So I want to ask how you navigated that you were working as a physician. How did you ask for help knowing that it might mean that you can't take care of patients anymore? Right. And so let me qualify. I just realized, let me qualify what I said. Yeah. It took me about five years to get to the point where I can say, Hey, I can do anything because yeah. when I stepped down from being faculty, it was a huge hit to my ego. I, I spun out. It was not okay. So it takes a long time for you to adjust. Um, and I'm not telling people that they should just adjust in that way, but yeah, it, it, um, it was, 
I did not know that it was going to be okay to ask for help and to tell licensing bodies that I had bipolar disorder and to get credentialed. But I think part of the problem with mental health um, stigma is that there are people, people out there saying, well, I told the licensing body that I had marriage counseling once and they asked for all my records and then I wasn't licensed when I'm not sure that's actually true because I got licensed in two states and I got credentialed for two, no, three jobs telling them that I had bipolar and nobody blinked an eye. And that's only two states out of 50. And, but people have diseases. It's just the way it is. Yeah. So I, and I don't think that in this day and age, doctors who are on these boards, they're doctors who are doing these credentialings. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's going on any witch hunts. So yeah, I think you just got to be honest. The other thing is speaking from someone who feels so much better and who has been suicidal in the past. It's just not worth it. It's not worth not getting the treatment. I don't know what the alternative is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I really don't. It's life or death for sure. It is. Yeah. And, and it's quality of life versus no quality of life, you know? So, and and some people would rather be dead than have no quality of life. You know, I'm one of them, Um, but I also am on three of those credentialing boards. And I can tell you for sure that very competent, very skilled physicians that I work with uh, are compliant with medications and are fully, you know, fully practicing physicians, and they struggle with all kinds of mental illness, all kinds of substance abuse history, all kinds of, you know, addictions or legal issues, uh, problems, um, medical problems, uh, social problems. They, they don't prohibit you from doing the things that you do. If you have a team who's helping you maintain, um, and you know, that's I credential physicians. So that means that, Mm -hmm. that we're helping, we're, we're giving permission, essentially it sounds, you know, but we're, we're approving, we're saying this person is competent and, and, and capable of taking care of another human's life. So if we're saying that even a person with bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or any mental illness, and we're, we're saying that, that they're okay to take care of patients. I mean, that, that's like the, one of the greatest responsibilities that I can think of. And that's why I do this job, but there are so many other industries that where also you could, you know, take, do your job, do your job. Well, be competent, capable, excel while living with a mental illness. Absolutely. Well, being a mom is one of them. Oh gosh. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. So my husband, he's in the air force and he deploys and I sometimes wonder like, Oh, do you not, do you trust me with the children, but what does he think when he leaves and he doesn't, he doesn't think anything. He just, he knows that I'm the best person to take care of them no matter what. So I just, I love that about him and he really doesn't have to worry about it anymore because I'm, I'm just super stable. But even when I was going through kind of the trials and tribulations of getting everything right, he just knew no matter what I was the right person to take care of them. So Oh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that you had him by your side to help navigate this, that you had a compassionate understanding and uh partner, you know, to really, cause that's the definition, right? 
That's the definition of for better or worse, (laughs) I guess you could say. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just such an incredible, it's so, I don't want to say inspirational because, um, I think you, you think of it as you're just doing what's best for you, but it really truly is, um, a beautiful story. And and I think it's, it is inspiring, um, to others who may be sitting there listening, thinking, you know, I know something is wrong. I know I have to get help. I know I need help, but maybe just don't want to even make that first phone call. So, so what does somebody like that do? How do you even muster the courage to ask for help when you know something is wrong? How did you do it? Um, well, I will say the first time I ever reached out for help was the hardest. And that was in medical school that, you know, by the time I went to the doctor for bipolar, it was an old, it was an old pattern. So that wasn't the hardest, but the hardest was in medical school when I reach out for help for my eating disorder. And that was the ugliest, most shameful secret, but it was my life really wasn't working anymore. And that's what I had to weigh was, is this shameful part of me worth exposing to somebody because my life really isn't working anymore? And that's the question I had to answer for myself. And finally it was, yeah, I, my, I can't do my life anymore because this is so bad. So that's, I guess what I would tell somebody is, will your life get better if you can fix this? And I think in most cases, the answer is yes, but you have to believe that you can fix it. And I hope what I've told you today gives people hope that you can fix it. I think sometimes people don't believe that mental health can get better because they're stuck inside their own head. Yeah. And it's kind of like dark glasses. You don't really think that things can get better, but maybe you can borrow the perspective of someone else. You can borrow my perspective or someone else's and think, well, if they got better, maybe someday I could. I love that perspective. And I love that line, borrow your perspective, you know, step outside of yourself and see, see someone else who's gone through it successfully. So many people, I think, suffer alone with this because of the stigma, you know, um, you can present a very perfect image exterior, you know, to, to others, you can look like you have control. You can look like you have everything together. You can hide your depression. You can hide your, you know, your eating disorder. Um, you know, not every person with an eating disorder weighs 60 pounds. That's a very common misconception. Um, so, so to the outside, you know, on the outside, it could look like everything is going well for, for, for someone. And really because of that stigma and that fear, they, you, you may be suffering in silence. You may be suffering alone. And, um, when you Google these kinds of things, or when you search for other people who are going through something similar, uh, it, it, it has to provide some kind of reassurance. It has to feel like a virtual handhold that there's someone else out there who's going through this and that has gotten better because they asked for help. That's right. Well, that's kind of the problem with physicians and mental illness. When you Google it, you don't get very much. So I'm, hoping that I can put myself out there, but it, again, it's, it's, it's hard, but I guess I'm starting that with you. So thank you. Oh my gosh. My pleasure. Thank you. The, the invisible nature of it, you know, makes it even, even, um, I think 
I think harder. And this, this, the stigma of that, that, that there are some people who don't even really truly believe that these are real medical problems there that they think you can fix it by, um, you know, they don't, they don't understand it as a, as a chemical issue, as a, as a, an anatomical brain chemistry issue. They think, oh, you know, this is a, this is related to something that happened in your past, or this is something that you can just go exercise and feel better, you know, or just get some more sleep while those lifestyle changes are, can be instrumental in your quality of life and making you feel better. Um, most mental health conditions are chemical in nature. They are real, they are measurable. They are, there's processes that we know cause them. And, um, the fact that some people still doubt that, um, makes it even harder to talk about, makes it even harder to kind of, you know, convince people that, that these are real issues um, that have real treatment protocols. Absolutely. I think it's really interesting that your that your eating disorder and your bipolar disorder kind of overlapped. Did one did the did the did the was the eating disorder a manifestation of bipolar? Did one lead to the other or are they kind of discrete and separate? No, they life? they definitely I, I don't know if interplayed, but um, the eating disorder cleared up when I started treating the bipolar appropriately. Um, it was, it's, it's hard to write it off this easily, but it was me trying to treat my bipolar kind of naturally, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. um, yeah, treat it with carbs, I guess. And actually my first manic episode in my twenties, I just went on this mad workout spree. And for a couple months, I just really got into working out and I wasn't sleeping very much. And I dropped like over 10% of my body weight. And then overnight it was gone. And then, yeah. And then I got depressed and started eating all the carbs and then I developed bulimia. So, and then that just continued on throughout my twenties. And I thought that was the problem. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, it goes going back to my, my point earlier is that the so, so someone could treat you and say, you know, someone who wasn't uh, fully informed about the differences between the conditions could say, oh yeah, you have an eating disorder and let's treat the eating disorder, not understanding that the excess exercise is a manifestation of mania and not right. a pure eating disorder. Right. And, so and I think a lot of people get into self-medicating and, and that's why addiction and mental illness overlap so significantly because you just want to feel normal. And if taking pills makes you feel normal, you're self-medicating. If exercising makes you like fulfill something that's missing or eating carbs makes you feel like something fills, fills a void or makes you feel normal or makes you feel happy, you know, then the, the, there's so much overlap between mental illness and other things like self-medicating, like, a, like substance abuse, like eating disorders. It's really interesting. Exactly. Yeah. And it's easy to see looking back, of course. And I, I don't obviously fault the doctors who treated me at all because I am one. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just easy to see looking back and yeah. analyzing everything like, oh yeah, the reason it was really easy for me to work out during those periods is I had 125% of my normal energy. But yeah, yeah, it once I started treating the periods where I would overeat as more like signals, like, oh mm -hmm. yeah, I am. I'm eating now because there's something off and I need to 
see what that off is, then I could just tweak my lifestyle and not worry about it so much. But I had to stop caring about my body image first, which I had a very loving dietitian who helped me do that. It's just, uh, that is very hard to disentangle from the modern female narrative. So it, it took a lot of disentangling. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you ask, I mean, can I ask, did you, in addition to medication management titration, did you go through therapy? Did you have a therapist kind of help you kind of get to the root of maybe where yes. this is coming from? Yes. So that is part of the reason that I always started working from home part-time also. Um, so I stepped back from the residency, um, partially because I was no longer able to take call and not working nights really did amazing things for my bipolar disorder because sleep deprivation and bipolar just do not mix. Um, but then I started working part-time from home because I was going to therapy every week working on my body image because at the time I had stopped purging, but I was still binge eating to deal with all of the carbs and all of the mood. Um, but then I was able to stop doing that once I stopped caring about my body image because I, <laughs> it is so insane. But when you are stressed out about how you look, then you eat to deal with that stress. Mm -hmm. And oh my goodness, I could, I could totally help somebody with this now, <laughs> but, um, I disentangled that. And then once I stopped caring about how I looked and I stopped binging and then it all sorted itself out, but it took over a year in therapy to do this. And that's why I was working part-time. I feel like a year to you must've felt like a lifetime, but I feel like a year is really impressive that, you know, after that, to me, it's, it seems like a, sh like a short period of time to untangle, you know, all of the, or whatever you needed to, to, to untangle, to be able to get to a place where you could move forward. You know, um, you mentioned the female narrative and, uh, I feel like so much of that interferes with at this point, normal, healthy development of a female mind males too, males too, for sure. But from our perspective, from my own perspective and my, you know, seeing my, you know, teenage daughter and her friends kind of live in this world where the narrative is one that is counterproductive in developing a healthy body image and a health, healthy mental um, frame of mind. It is. Yeah. So I try not to have too many food rules in my house and it's impossible not to screw up our kids. Right. It's just, sure. I understand it's impossible sure. not to, but I try not to have any food rules. So you always get dessert, no matter what, doesn't matter. You can always eat whatever you want, no matter what, because I figure at some point the kids are going to leave the house. They're going to eat whatever they want. They're going to go to college and mom's not going to be there to say, don't eat your dessert. Don't yeah. have snacks. So I just, I don't want them to have to ask me, can I have a snack? Can I have dessert? Because if I'm the food police, oh my God, I just, I can't. So, um, yeah. And I don't, I just don't believe in food rolls anymore. <laughs> I did carb counting, macro counting, uh, calorie counting. I just, I'm done counting for the rest of my life. Yeah. You know, I think that that kind of relates back to self-regulation you know, helping our children develop the tools to determine what feels good and what makes them 
perform the way they want to perform. You know, if you know that not getting a good night's sleep means you're going to get off to a bad start the next day, you know, and maybe have not as good a day as you did if you got a good night's sleep, then that's how they learn to take care of their bodies. You know, when we talk to them about instead of saying, oh, carbs are bad because they make you fat, you know, talking to them about why fruits and vegetables are going to make them feel like, you know, Superman or Superwoman, you know, in kid terms and kid language, we teach them how to take care of themselves. We teach them that how, you know, how to love themselves and how to give themselves good stuff. And it's not even necessarily self-esteem. It's just um, giving them the, the, you know, the power to regulate how their bodies feel, which I think is something that is hard to teach as an adult. It's hard to go back and undo that if you never learned it as a kid. Absolutely. And I, I will say it's, I have, I'm a a little bit privileged because I'm able to keep healthy food around the house. Mm. So they always are able to choose from fresh fruit and fresh vegetables and snacks that I don't mind them eating. And it would be a little bit different, right? If I only had processed things and I would feel maybe like I needed to police that a little bit more. And I'm very lucky that my children feel like they want to eat some fresh food from time to time. So it's kind of easy for me to say these things, right? But yeah, I, I do feel like at this point in their life, they're making the good choices. The other thing is I, I believe in separating what's my job from what's their job. So like you said, it's their job to make sure that they're taking care of their sleep and um, waking up on time. And right now they're nine and 11. So it's their job to get out of the house on time for school. Yeah. And I know what time I'm leaving, but, and we walk to school. So I'm leaving at this time. So I I hope you have eaten breakfast and I hope you have packed your (laughs) backpack. But the way my husband and I kind of see it is they're on a, a steady incline. You can see this between here and then here is when you leave the house for college, but (laughs) it's, it's not a, it's not a steep drop off where I'm packing your backpack and I'm making your food and then whoop, that's kind of the way I was. Um, My parents kind of shepherded over me. And then all of a sudden when I left for college, they said, "Uh, um, by the way, here's, (laughs) here's your, talk. Uh, here's some birth control. We'll see you at Christmas. You have to take care of yourself now you're on your own. Yeah, exactly. I was like, but wait, how do I, how do I get food? How do I get money? (laughs) So we're, we're taking them on the the slowing clan up. I love it. I love it. And I love that you talked about, you know, kind of equity and the privilege that you have, that you can, you have the resources to take good care of yourself. Um, I think in especially, you know, we're talking as it relates to food and um, food poverty and, you know, um, is a, is a real issue, especially when it comes to people who are trying to take care of their medical health, you know, health conditions like diabetes, you know, I've said it a million times, the salad is seven 99, but the burger at, you know, the big Mac is a dollar. Um, and some people live in environments where access to good, high quality food is not easy. Um, but this is especially true. I think even more true when it comes to mental health resources, there's, especially in the United States, you can tell me about how it goes in the UK, but, um, in the U S there's such a shortage of finances of, uh, of, 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 um, why, uh, 
resources that are offered, you know, the money doesn't go towards the mental health in this country. And for every person who needs mental health care, there's for, for every, I should say for every bed that we have, for every doctor, every psychiatrist or psychologist or counselor out there, they probably have 10 to 50 people on their waiting list who, who are needing their help. Um, so the, there's in particular uh, a dearth of resources available to people who need mental health help. Absolutely. Yeah. And unfortunately, the medications also available to the people who are able to pay privately are different from the medications that are available to the people who are not. There are older, less expensive medications with more side effects and that people are more likely to stop taking Yeah, um, that are available to people who aren't able to pay. And frankly, I wouldn't want to have to be on those. Um, I would, if that was my only option, but it's not surprising that you get people who aren't willing to take those because or, like I said, they have a lot of side effects. Yeah. Or who have to choose between paying their rent and getting their medications that keep them at their job, that keep them functional. You know, it's a, it's a travesty in my mind that that's how we live in this country. Yeah. That's, the, that's the truth. Yeah, no, but I, I, I am grateful every day for my mental health. And I am grateful that I live in a country that provides for my mental health. Yeah. I'm happy for you for that. So, so, so tell me about what you do now, because I would love to know how you made a transition to working from home and coaching women who work from home and helping navigate the challenges associated with that kind of life. Yes. Yeah. So I mentioned that when I was focusing on my mental health, I started working from home and that I had actually two part-time jobs where I was working as a physician. And I learned that it's not just all rainbows working from home. I really was expecting things to just be super easy and fabulous. But, <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of people learned this during COVID. I actually switched to working from home before COVID, but the time just flies and it's not always easy. It's not... Um, all is cracked up to be necessarily unless you manage it really well. Uh, and these are some lessons that I learned. I figured out how to manage things much better and how to optimize my time and how to optimize my day. And I had a little bit of an advantage being in the military myself prior. And also being a physician, I think, helps you compartmentalize and manage your time a little bit better as well. Mm-hmm. Um, And then we moved overseas. And since then, um, at first, I just decided to bop around and travel. But after about six months, I started kind of getting the itch to do something entrepreneurial. So I decided to start documenting what I did working from home and seeing if I could help some other people. So that's what I've been doing. I'm, like I said, I'm coaching other women who work from home and seeing if I can help them optimize their work from home lives. The thing that I'm working on right now that I'm really excited about is this digital household binder. Uh, One of the things we do in the military is we have a household binder. And I think anyone in the military would understand what I'm talking about. (laughs) Do you have a household binder? No, but it sounds like I need one. (laughs) (laughs) They're really helpful. I mean, it's so in the military, move around every few years. So we always keep our important documents in a binder. It's a, usually a physical binder, 
but the problem is they always get out of date and it's in my experience it's always been more trouble than it's worth so i started working on this digital household binder and i'm really having fun with it and i think i'm going to be sharing it with all my clients Basically the things that I've put in it so far, I have a shopping list and I have a video linked on my Facebook page. Yay. I have a shopping list that you can print out every time you need it. I have a Christmas list that all my family can start putting all of the things that they want in there. I have um, a, a list that you can use every time you go on a vacation, you can just print out the list of things you need to pack. Um, I have my favorite flowers and my sizes. I have my kids, <laughs> I know, cause my husband, doesn't ever remember my favorite flowers, but on our anniversary, you can just go in there and see. Perfect. Um, I know. Um, this anyway, it has everything in there, but it's all in a this app and it's clickable and it has links and oh spreadsheets and, uh, videos. And anyway, it's it's kind of hard to explain, but it's really cool. I'll have to send you a link. I would love to see it. You know, I think that um routine organization, uh kind of structure is something that prevents us from reaching our goals. It's something that prevents us from whether it's a lofty goal, like starting a business or it's whether it's something like, I just want to be able to get my kids out the door in the morning. You know, when we, ha when we lack organization and we lack structure around those processes, um, it sets us up for kind of being, um, uh, frazzled, uh, you know, it causes stress. It causes anxiety. It sends our heart rate up. We go into fight or flight, then we overeat. And it's like a whole cascade of, you know, messy emotions and things that, you know, if we just had a binder, you know, if we just, <laughs> exactly. uh, uh, my cousin, my cousin, she calls herself the bag lady. And she taught me that you need a bag for each sport. You need to have the bags on the hooks. And the night before you need to have the bags ready to go. So when it's time to go to dance, you just take the dance bag and you get in the car. And I cannot tell you how revolutionary that has been <laughs> in our lives. We have three kids who need to be in three different places and two parents who you know, work full-time jobs. So I, I'm really excited and interested to, to learn more about how, what you're teaching um, can improve efficiency, organization, productivity, and therefore free up some time for all the good stuff that, you know, the stuff you want to do, the trips, the walks outside, you know, the, the drives because it's sunset, the trips for ice cream or other things like that. Um, I'm in awe of you. I I respectfully request that you share your story more. I would love for all of our colleagues to know who you are and to hear um, what you have accomplished and achieved with respect to not only your health and your mental health, but your quality of life and your and your the way you love your life. Um, I think it's really something that needs to be heard. And I just so appreciate you sharing your experience with the people who are listening. I know you're going to help so many people. Um, please tell my friends who are listening where they can find you if they want to learn more from you or even if they want to work with you. Absolutely. So you can find me at alisontherese.com. And if you want to work with me, there's a contact me form. Just shoot me a link and I'll get right back to you. Oh my gosh. Please, please, please continue to share. You're a beautiful speaker. You're a beautiful person and your experience is so valuable and will be, will help so many people. I just know it. I really appreciate you being here and, um, sharing with my audience. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. All right. You too. 
thanks for listening to my podcast, Family Health with Dr. Lex. If you love the music like I do, you can find more at therealmichaelvm.com forward slash music. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review, subscribe, and share with your friends. You can ask questions, suggest topics for future podcast interviews, and find more health and wellness information on my website, drlexlifestylemedicine.com. See you next time. Oh, hey.